What's up, everybody? Welcome to Bomb City Locker Room Talk Podcast. You're listening to episode 121. In this episode, this will be a special true crime series that we will be releasing. And we plan on delving deep into the world of local true crime and focusing exclusively this week on a captivating case that bears an uncanny resemblance to another specific local case. These gripping stories unfolded in Amarillo, Texas between 1979 in 1981, occurring on opposite sides of town and involving teenage perpetrators. Both of these cases have left an indelible mark on pop culture, finding their way into documentaries like A&E's Killer Kids and the 2008 documentary film The Last Word. These chilling stories have even inspired theatrical horror films such as Johnny Frank Garrett's Last Word and others that are soon to be in the works. So join us as we explore the unsettling parallels and intricacies of these haunting Amarillo murders. The case of Johnny Frank Garrett is a well-known and controversial one in the realm of criminal justice and wrongful convictions. Johnny Frank Garrett was convicted and subsequently executed for the rape and murder of a nun named Sister Today Abends in Amarillo, Texas in 1981. The case garnered significant attention due to several factors including the speed at which Garrett was tried and the sentence to death, as well as the lack of concrete evidence ultimately tying him to the actual crime and murder. Critics of Garrett's conviction argued that there were serious flaws in the legal process. There was no substantial physical evidence linking him to the crime scene, and his conviction relied heavily on his confession, which he never signed and he later recanted, claiming it was coerced. Additionally, there were allegations of misconduct, as well as concerns about the integrity of Garrett's legal representation. Despite these concerns, Johnny Frank Garrett was executed in 1992. His case has since become emblematic of the broader issues surrounding wrongful convictions, the death penalty, and the potential for the justice system to make grave errors. In the years following Garrett's execution, there have been ongoing efforts by activists and organizations to re-examine the case and raise awareness about the possibility of his innocence. The case of Johnny Frank Garrett serves as a stark reminder of the need for a fair and just legal system that safeguards against wrongful convictions and the irreversible consequences of the death penalty. This case hits incredibly close to home for me, both figuratively and literally. I spent my childhood just a few blocks away from the St. Francis Convent situated on Northeast 18th in Amarillo, Texas. My family's home was located at Northeast 21st Street. During those formative years, I was exposed to the persistent rumors and sensational details surrounding the Johnny Frank Garrett case. As I matured, my curiosity led me to delve deeper into the actual facts of the case. It always struck me as deeply unsettling to grow up hearing about a nun being raped and murdered in our own neighborhood. Life has brought me to a new area, and now I reside just a few blocks away from another infamous murder site in Amarillo. This case involves J. Kelly Pinkerton, who brutally murdered a wife and mother. Six months later, he would claim another woman's life as she left her job at a local furniture store here in Amarillo. What's striking is how these two cases intertwine. They occurred within a few years of each other, both involving teenagers 
as alleged perpetrators and took place during the Halloween season, with one actually occurring on Halloween in 1981. The impact of these cases on the Amarillo Police Department was profound, significantly altering their approach to handling homicide investigations. The cases affected one another in various profound ways, casting a long shadow over the city of Amarillo and instilling fear into the entire community during this time. So with that being said, take a moment to unwind and join me on a journey through part one of Amarillo in Peril delving into the intriguing cases of Johnny Frank Garrett and J. Kelly Pinkerton. For many, this tale epitomizes a society's failure on multiple fronts. Sister Today's life's journey began at St. Francis Convent in North Amarillo, where she resided for decades. Born Martina in the town of Marbach, Switzerland in 1932, she embarked on her American adventure at the age of 27 initially arriving via Columbia in 1937 and eventually attaining a U.S. citizenship in 1940. Sister Tadea Benz, a founding member of the Franciscan Order of Nuns, firmly planted her roots in St. Francis Convent in North Amarillo, Texas. By October 1981, she was one of 38 nuns residing in the convent. Sister Tadea was a passionate gardener, and a skilled seamstress, utilizing her embroidery work to support the convent financially. She devoted herself to teaching at St. Lawrence Elementary School, and remarkably, at the age of 76, she remained an active contributor to the convent's daily operations and upkeep, even practicing in the Sunrise Mass at St. Francis Convent. The morning of October 31, 1981, brought an unexpected disruption. During the sunrise mass, Sister Tadea's absence did not go unnoticed by her fellow sisters, sparking immediate concern. Following the service, they hurried to her room and were puzzled to find her bedroom door closed. Given her limited hearing, she was typically kept the door ajar to hear the morning bells. Upon entering the room, a grim sight awaited the sisters. Sister Tadea Benz lay lifeless on the floor, unclothed and covered by a blanket. It was evident that she had passed away, her body bearing signs of violence, including blood on her face and scattered on the floor. Initially, it was assumed that Tadea had succumbed to a sudden medical episode, passing away from natural causes within the secure confines of the convent. There was no reason to suspect otherwise. The nuns acted swiftly, alerting a priest and a funeral home to the tragic discovery and changes in Sister Tadea's condition. They also noticed bloodstains on her pillowcase and promptly set about changing her bedding. The day grew increasingly somber, yet the nuns of the St. Francis Convent remained unaware of the shocking revelation that would soon unfold. It remains uncertain how much later in the day one of the sisters made a startling observation. A broken window in the ground floor recreation room appeared as just another unfortunate accident on that fateful day. However, for the attending officers, coincidences were not easily accepted. They contacted the funeral home, instructing the funeral director to halt the embalming process. Dr. Ralph Erdman appointed only two months prior to conduct autopsies for Randall and Potter County 
as well as the Amarillo and Canyon Police Departments. It marked his first homicide case of his career. The results revealed a horrifying truth. Sister Tadea had been brutally beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Her body bore gouge marks and evidence of strangulation around her neck, and her larynx had been crushed. Although Sister Bernice had previously noticed marks on her neck, a nurse had suggested they could have been self-inflicted in the event of a hemorrhage. The discovery sent shockwaves through the entire community, forever altering the perception of the peaceful haven that was once, that was St. Francis Convent. Sister Tadea's face had been meticulously cleansed of blood, leaving no visible traces, and her black attire had been returned to its customary state, likely by the proficient hand of a pathologist. Dr. Ralph Erdman's conclusion pointed to manual strangulation as the cause of Sister Tadea's tragic demise. The night before, Sister Lennon saw her sister Tadea at work in the sewing room, which concluded around 10 o'clock p.m. the night before. The shocking discovery of the lifeless body transpired between 6 and 7 a.m., indicating a perplexing time frame from 8 to 9 hours during which the crime had unfolded. The crime scene, regrettably, had been compromised in several ways. The unwitting actions of the nuns not only disturbed potential evidence on the body itself, but also extended to the cleaning of Sister Today's room, which included changing her sheets. Police homicide captain Jimmy Davis expressed his hope that the inadvertent disturbance of possible evidence would not impede the investigation at all. He acknowledged that at times, even untouched crime scenes did not yield all the answers needed to solve a crime. He added that he could not definitively conclude that any crucial evidence had been lost. There was no doubt in his mind that the sisters had acted in the utmost sincerity when they initially believed Sister Today's death to be of natural causes. As a police meticulously combed through the remnants of the crime scene, they uncovered multiple items of interest. A butter knife bent at a sharp 90-degree angle was discovered underneath Sister Today's bed. Although the nuns had diligently cleaned up small blood stains on the floor, more blood spots were identified on the bedroom wall. Notably, a discarded white t-shirt bearing stains of blood was also located within the room. The discovered t-shirt clearly did not belong to Sister Tadea, and multiple fingerprints were lifted from various areas within the convent. Additionally, a blood smear was detected on the inside of the second floor fire door escape of the convent. Further evidence was unearthed outside the convent as well, particularly in the driveway where a steak knife was found. Detectives also noticed shoe prints in the garden bed beneath the broken recreation room window. They speculated whether the knife discovered in the driveway had been employed in an attempt to cut through the fire screen. Amarillo was situated in both Randall and Potter counties. Potter County as the primary seat of the city and Randall County as a seat of the neighboring city, Canyon. This unique geographical placement resulted in two district attorney's offices, one for Potter County and one for Randall County. 
1981, Amarillo's law enforcement consisted of the Potter County Sheriff's Department, the Randall County Sheriff's Department, and the Amarillo Police Department. Historically, unfortunately, one reoccurring issue with multiple law enforcement agencies operating within the same jurisdiction was a sense of competition and rivalry. Prior to the era of computerized systems and databases, departments often chose not to share crucial information with other agencies, which could be necessary for ongoing investigations. In some instances, people within different police agencies and within the same jurisdiction might possess different pieces of the puzzle related to the crime. When one or both agencies refuse to collaborate or share information, the consequences would eventually be dire, especially in cases such as the Johnny Frank Garrett case and later the J. Kelly Pinkerton case. By the 1980s, Potter County was grappling with political and policing challenges. Police Chief Lee Spradlin, who held the position at the time, faced allegations of mishandling murder investigations conducted in his department. Public trust in the city's law enforcement agencies had eroded completely. In October of 1979, both Potter County District Attorney Tom Curtis and the Chief of Detectives of the Amarillo Police Department were indicted by a grand jury for conspiracy to commit aggravated perjury. This indictment steamed from a high-profile trial concerning the abduction and murder of 16-year-old Amarillo teenager Tina Moya in 1975. Misconduct in the Moya case had led to three trials and cast a negative light on local law enforcement. Spradlin's department faced accusations of mishandling the 1979 investigation of Sarah Don Lawrence. Sarah, a 30-year-old wife and mother, was raped and murdered in her home on October 27, 1979, while her husband was at work and her children were asleep in another room. The assault was shockingly brutal and savage. The perpetrator had seized a Bowie knife, previously displayed as an ornament on a wall inside the residence, and wielded it to torment and brutally murder Sarah. The horrifying discovery of his wife's lifeless body fell upon her husband as he returned home from work, initially mistaking it for some sort of Halloween prank. Five months later, on April 9, 1980, tragedy struck once again as 25-year-old Sherry Lynn Welsh was raped and murdered. She had been preparing to close Reflections, the furniture store she managed in Wolfland Village. Sherry's husband, Text, mourned the loss of his beloved wife and grew increasingly frustrated with the police. Members of the Amarillo Police Department had initially linked Sherry's murder to the unresolved case of Sarah Don Lawrence. They had told Tex that once they captured Sarah Don Lawrence's killer, they would also have the man responsible for his wife's murder. However, after 18-year-old J. Kelly Pinkerton was arrested for the Lawrence murder, law enforcement seemed to swiftly abandon this theory. One pivotal moment during Sarah Don Lawrence's murder investigation occurred when a police officer traced footprints from behind the alleyway of her house to the residence of then 17-year-old J. Kelly Pinkerton. Pinkerton was not home at the time when police arrived. The police observed him sprinting through the nearby bookstore parking lot. 
They pursued him in identifying themselves. They eventually apprehended Pinkerton as he attempted to scale a tall fence. Despite the cold October night, Pinkerton was shirtless, bore scratch marks on his arms, and had wet hair, indicating he had recently showered. Police promptly arrested him and took him in for questioning. The distinctive dimple pattern on, his sh- on the soles of his shoes appeared to match the size and texture of those found outside the Lawrence residence. However, surprisingly, the measurements and characteristics of the shoe impressions in the alleyway were not compared to Pinkerton's footwear. Bloodied handprints were lifted from the crime scene at the Lawrence residence from the victim's body and another from a coffee table, the site of the majority of the brutal attack. These fingerprints appeared likely to match Pinkerton's, providing further evidence. Astonishingly, the police had located the killer within three hours of discovering the crime, possessed physical evidence leading him to the murder, but instead of promptly pursuing the evidence and making an arrest, they released him. Tex Welsh, Sarah's husband, couldn't help but sense that the police department had deliberately severed the connection between the two murders. Linking the two crimes would inevitably cast doubt on the Amarillo Police Department, which was already under intense scrutiny for their decision to release Pinkerton and for their perceived mishandling of the Sherry Welsh furniture store crime scene. Following his wife's murder, text at the law enforcement's request handed over Sherry's purse and checkbook to the Amarillo Police Department. Astonishingly, both these crucial pieces of evidence were somehow misplaced. However, the most alarming display of incompetence lay in the condition of the furniture store crime scene itself. Surprisingly, fingerprint analysis was not conducted at the crime scene until more than a week after Sherry Welsh's murder. This delay only ended when Randall County DA Randall Sherrod insisted on a thorough investigation and examination of the furniture shop expressing his dissatisfaction within the Amarillo Police Department's investigation thus far. Randall County deputies, alongside an Amarillo Police Department detective, were dispatched to properly assess the crime scene. Their efforts yielded multiple fingerprints and even a piece of a tooth. Sherrod openly voiced his dismay over the police investigation. He firmly believed that the two cases were connected and was determined to see the killer brought to justice. In his pursuit of justice, Sherrod was compelled to obtain case files through a subpoena after Emerald Police Chief Spradlin refused to cooperate. By late February 1981, the Randall County Sheriff's Department was still investigating Sherry's murder, but they encountered limited cooperation. All information and tips had to be funneled through the Amarillo Police Department and the contentious relationship between Sherrod and Spradling made solving the case even more challenging. It was evident that the various law enforcement agencies in Amarillo had not been as collaborative as they should have been. A Randall County grand jury took a closer look at the police handling of the Sherry Welsh case. Under the leadership of Sherrod, this grand jury resulted in an indictment against J. Kelly Pinkerton for the murder of Sarah Don Lawrence. Pingerton was arrested on September 26, 1980, and he would later be sentenced to death for his involvement in the two murders, both of which he committed at the age of 17. In October of 1980, the Amarillo City Commission held a vote 
resulting in a 3-1 to decision in favor of retaining Spradlin as police chief. However, this decision came with the provision that he be placed on a 90-day probation period. By December 1980, following the findings of another inquest, this time concerning the Sarah Don Lawrence case, police chief Spradlin turned in his resignation effective January 2nd of 1981. At the time, Spradlin expressed his weariness with what he saw as corrupt politicians and underdue influence from the Amarillo newspaper, which he believed were shaping city policy. These sentiments, coupled with the other ongoing issues, had significantly eroded public perception and trust in the law enforcement departments. Around this time, Danny Hill had recently assumed the role of district attorney for Potter County, having campaigned on a promise of strict retribution. There were numerous unresolved cases, and the need for justice was palpable. With the departure of Police Chief Spradlin, 1981 brought a new crisis for Amarillo's law enforcement. During the spring and summer of that year, a spree of rapes terrorized the community, with many of the victims being elderly residents in their own homes. On July 8, 1981, one of these elderly women also became a murder victim. Narni Box Bryson, a 76-year-old woman living in Potter County, was found dead in her bedroom. She had been subjected to a brutal rape and assault. With the white t-shirt left at the crime scene, among other pieces of evidence collected by the police, in response to these heinous attacks, the Potter and Randall Special Crimes Unit was formed. Throughout the year of 1981, psychics played a prominent role in missing persons and murder cases. Amarillo had its own clairvoyant, Inez Patterson, known by the alias of Bubbles, who had reportedly collaborated with the police on previous occasions. Shortly after Sister Today's murder, Bubbles approached the Amarillo Globe with the startling claim. She, along with another psychic named Ellen, asserted that they had shared a joint vision of the man responsible for the nun's murder. In their vision, Bubbles and Ellen H. described a distinct house where they believed the killer resided, a white frame home with dirty hardwood floors. The name Clyde featured prominently in their vision, leading them to speculate that this might be the murderer's name. However, it wasn't just the house and the name that stood out. The psychics claimed to have a clear image of the killer himself. He appeared to be a young, tall, and lean individual with a muscular build. The psychics believed he was someone who acted out fantasies by donning costumes and disguises, possibly influenced by the fact that the man in their vision had half of his face painted black and white, along with the curly black Afro-style wig. The man in their vision possessed an appearance reminiscent of Abraham Lincoln, with olive skin, large eyes, and a height approximately 5 feet 11 inches. Bubbles and Ellen also suspected that this individual had some negative interactions with personnel at Catholic facilities and led a complex home life. Given the gruesome nature of the crime, the conclusion drawn by the psychics might seem plausible at first glance. One might assume that an individual who would assault and murder a nun within a convent might harbor 
a grudge against the Catholic faith or organized religion in general. However, an alternative argument could be made that the perpetrator was simply a predator preying on vulnerable and elderly women. It appeared as though the psychics were weaving a narrative that aligned with someone who could potentially hold a grudge against Catholic services. A person known for a documented dysfunctional home life and men who closely matched the physical description provided by the psychics. The young man in question resided at 4000 Northeast 18th Street in Amarillo, Texas, fitting the description provided by the psychics almost uncannily. His name was Johnny Frank Garrett. Despite his age of 17, Garrett had already endured a staggering amount of trauma beyond what most could fathom or bear. It's worth noting that the Catholic Church might have viewed the psychic's vision as miraculous, a manifestation of God working in mysterious ways. However, it's equally plausible that the church, like many others, would have frowned upon what could be interpreted as occult practices. Regardless of one's perspective on psychics, there was no denying the startling level of detail within their vision, right down to Johnny Frank Garrett's home. It raised questions about how easily the psychics had located the residents. The only element of their vision that seemed slightly askew was their belief that the perpetrator's name was Clyde. Interestingly, there was indeed a Clyde living at 4000 Northeast 18th Street, and everyone in the vicinity knew his name, thanks to the bold red lettering spelling it out on the side of his dog kennel. It was an odd situation. Rumor had it that Bubbles had collaborated with the police previously and this time it seemed she had gone straight to the media with her tip. It does raise questions about the credibility of the situation, especially considering that Bubbles' husband allegedly worked as a police informant after being caught smuggling drugs into the state. Regardless of the backgrounds of those involved, a week after Bubbles came forward with her story, 17-year-old Johnny Frank Garrett suddenly found himself thrust into the spotlight as a prime suspect. Although the article containing Bubbles' account was not published until after Garrett's arrest, it's conceivable that certain individuals within the newspaper may have shared the psychic's information with their police contacts. At first glance, it might seem that law enforcement had their man, and the elderly women of Amarillo could finally breathe a little bit easier. Yet something appeared conspicuously amiss with this investigation. Prior to Bubble sharing her vision and before law enforcement zeroed in on Johnny Frank Garrett, the police had been diligently investigating a completely different subject. On April 1st, 1980, chaos erupted in Cuba. Five Cuban nationals had driven a van through the gates of the Peruvian embassy in Havana, seeking asylum. A Cuban guard lost his life in the process prompting Fidel Castro to demand the extradition of the five men from the embassy. When the embassy denied his request, thousands more Cuban nationals flocked to the embassy seeking asylum. This triggered a chain reaction of events with significant repercussions for the United States. It didn't take long for Fidel Castro to announce that any Cubans desiring to leave the country and seek refuge in the United States could do so, but only if they departed from the Cubans' port of Mariel. The only condition was that they needed someone to receive them at the other end. 
This provided to be no deterrent for those seeking refuge, leading to a massive exodus known as the Mariel Boat Lift. Cuban Americans in the United States mobilized boats to rescue their loved ones, causing the Florida Coast Guard to be overwhelmed by the constant influx of refugees. An estimated 125,000 Cubans arrived in the U.S. aboard roughly 1,700 boats during the Mariel Boat Lift. The entire process was a chaotic nightmare, with many Cuban nationals arriving daily and having nowhere to go upon reaching the United States. Tragically, many lost their lives as they rushed to leave Cuba on overcrowded, unstable vessels. When it was revealed that Fidel Castro had released prison inmates and mental health patients as part of this purge of what he deemed undesirables, the situation grew even more concerning. Despite the Coast Guard's efforts to halt the incoming boats, asylum seekers continued to arrive. By June 20, 1980, President Jimmy Carter had declared a state of emergency and implemented the Cuban-Haitian Entrant Program. This granted temporary status to refugees from both countries, offering them access to asylum, processing, and community assistance. The conclusion of the boat lift came in October of 1980, following negotiations between President Carter and Fidel Castro. Catholic services played a pivotal role in aiding the refugees by managing a program aimed at addressing their urgent needs within the community. They helped place Cuban nationals across the United States, assisting them in finding employment, housing, and meeting immediate requirements such as food and clothing. Families throughout the country generously opened their homes to these asylum seekers. By 1980, at least 47 Cuban refugees made their way to Amarillo, Texas, where the St. Francis Convent played a significant role in providing community support to the newly settled refugees. An article from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram dated November 5, 1981, titled Cubans Probed and None Slain, reported that investigators in Amarillo were exploring the possibility of a connection between Sister Today's murder and the sexual assault of 10 other women in the area. A Cuban refugee had been arrested two days earlier on charges of burglary with the intent to commit rape. The article mentioned that police were comparing fingerprints of the 47 Cuban refugees to a partial fingerprint found on a potential weapon at the convent crime scene. According to the police records at the time, 47 Cubans who had recently arrived in Amarillo, 24 of them had already been arrested for various offenses. Perhaps the most intriguing was the article's mention of black hair-like strands found at both the St. Francis Convent and the Narnie Box Bryson crime scenes. This raised the question of whether these hair-like strands were the sole basis for the police's pursuit of the Cuban perpetrator theory. In a message sent to the FBI by the Amarillo Police Department, it was noted that the physical evidence at the crime scene suggested the involvement of a Cuban Puerto Rican, or possibly a black offender. A supplementary report compiled by the police described an incident involving a patrolling security guard named Mr. Merrick on the morning of, on the morning of Sister Today's murder. According to the report, Mr. Merrick had encountered a Hispanic male hiding behind a tree on the compound. When he approached the subject, the individual emerged in a combative manner. Mr. Merrick believed the subject intended to harm him, so he released his dog to confront the individual. The dog leaped out 
and bit the individual. However, the subject managed to escape. He was described as a Hispanic male in his early 20s with long black hair and a red handkerchief tied around his neck. This description closely matched the person involved in the altercation with Mr. Merrick. Two separate female witnesses later identified this individual as someone they had seen in the vicinity on or around the evening of the murder. One of the witnesses actually spoke to the police at the time and placed the man near the convent just five minutes before the incident. The individual identified through the witness's account was named Fernando Felipe Flores, a 28-year-old Cuban man who had recently been resettled in Amarillo by Catholic services after arriving during the Mariel boat lift. In the early hours of October 31st, the same morning Sister Today's body was discovered, another nun at the convent received a peculiar telephone call. She recalled the incident in her statement saying, On October 31st, 1981, about 2 a.m. or so, I heard the phone ringing in the hall. My room is the closest to the phone. When I answered the phone, I recognized a caller from a previous conversation. He had called maybe six to eight weeks ago and called himself Father Jose. He said he needed some help and asked if I could give him some time. The caller proceeded to disclose his sexual problems to which she advised him to consult with one of the fellow priests. He persistently asked for help until she suggested he pray and hung up. The man on the phone had a distinctive, thick Spanish accent. On the night of Sister Today's murder, another elderly woman in the area was discovered injured in her home and taken to the hospital. Initially, law enforcement suspected that she might have been attacked by the same perpetrator as Sister Tadea. However, by Saturday, November 7th, District Attorney Danny Hill announced that after a thorough investigation, they believed the 77-year-old woman had sustained her injuries from a fall. The article's writer noted the irony in this revelation, considering that Sister Tadea had initially been thought to have fallen before her further examination revealed that she had been murdered. Danny Hill explained that the woman had undergone hypnosis and was unable to recall the events of that night. As the article's publication, the police were still investigating. On the same day, the newspaper article indicated that the Cuban suspect was no longer considered a viable lead. Evidence sent for analysis at the FBI crime labs had returned inconclusive results, with the black hairs presumably being part of the evidence examined. On November 7th, an article on the Galveston Daily News quoted District Attorney Danny Hill as stating that they did not have a prime suspect. The article had mentioned the investigation into a 28-year-old Cuban man named Fernando Flores, who had been arrested and charged in a connection with the burglary and attempted rape of a 28-year-old woman at the same night as Sister Today's attack. Samples were taken from Flores' clothing, and the FBI had examined them. Danny Hill had clarified that while Flores had not been charged with Sister Today's murder, he had been one of three of four suspects in the case. Detectives had now officially cleared Flores as a suspect in Sister Today's murder. Two days later on the afternoon of Monday, November 9th, Johnny Frank Garrett was arrested at his family home, initially for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. The following day, he was charged with capital murder. Johnny Frank Garrett appeared before Justice of the Peace L.B. Bartlett and was denied bond on the capital murder charge, although he was gained a $5,000 bond 
for the unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. But how did the police come to suspect Johnny Frank Garrett? Remember the Cuban suspect that had only been brought up as a lead two days prior to Johnny's arrest? According to DA Danny Hill, everything fell into place on Monday the 9th when an investigator recalled that Johnny Frank Garrett had been seen prowling in the area of the night of the murder. On November 11, two days after Johnny Garrett's arrest, a newspaper article reported that the police have become suspicious of Johnny after receiving a call from one of his neighbors. A police supplementary report seemed to support this claim. It read, On the 30th of October, 1981, at 11.48 p.m., Officer Reese and I were dispatched to 4002 Northeast 18th on a burglary. As we were approaching the 4000 block of Northeast 18th at 11.54 p.m., I observed a white male wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt running from the Alamo Catholic Complex in a southwesterly direction towards 1709 North Spring. The subject cut between 1707 and 1709 North Spring, and we circled the block, but were unable to find him. We then went to 4002 Northeast 18th. We then went to 4002 Northeast 18th for our call and spoke to the complainant. The complainant mentioned that Johnny Garrett, who lived at 4000 Northeast 18th, had been prowling around the house at 1801 North Spring. When the officers arrived at the complainant's house, they observed Johnny in his front yard wearing a white t-shirt and blue jeans. He appeared to match the description of the person they had seen running. Johnny was holding a stick or a pole approximately three feet long, which he was using to strike a bush next to the front door with great force. After Johnny saw the officers, he returned to his house, and they did not speak to him at that time. The supplementary report was dated November 10th, 1981, and it was unclear what information was recorded on the original report from the evening of October 30th. Newspaper reports from the time between Sister Today's murder on October 31st and November 7th consistently suggested that law enforcement believed her murder might not be an isolated incident. This theory appeared to be shared by both the Potter County DA and the Amarillo Police Department. Nearly every newspaper article during this time used phrases such as similar to the July death of Narnie Box Bryson and the death remained him of, in reference to homicide captain Jimmy Davis, as the two cases shared marked similarities. The prevailing theory was that Sister's Day's brutal attack was not an isolated incident, primarily due to the strikingly similar injuries inflicted on both her and Narnie Box Bryson, as well as the undeniable similarities in the evidence found at both crime scenes. Both victims were elderly, strangled to death in their homes during the early morning hours, and subjected to severe beatings and sexual assaults. Additionally, white men's t-shirts or shirts were left behind as evidence, and both women had connections to Catholic services. This pattern raised the question, was it a repeat of the Welsh and Don Lawrence cases from previous years? The Amarillo Police Department initially believed that the cases were linked, up until a point where it no longer aligned with their narrative. The central question emerged, was Johnny Frank Garrett truly guilty? Despite the almost identical nature of the crime scenes, law enforcement seemed to be searching for two different perpetrators. It's worth considering why. 
Despite their initial suspicion that the two cases were connected, the police didn't attempt to implicate Johnny Frank Garrett in Narnie Box Bryson's murder after his arrest. Numerous newspaper articles hinted at a potential link between the two crimes. Perhaps law enforcement was confident that someone else had committed Narnie's rape and murder, or maybe there were other factors at play. This concludes part one of Amarillo in Peril. Stay tuned for part two, where we will delve deep into Johnny Frank Garrett's trial and explore the aftermath of all of these events. Stay tuned. If you like this episode, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Until next time.